Today is a special Encore episode with Dr. Christina Shenby. She is coach and founder of Time for Your Life. She is one of the coach facilitators that will be at the Revitalized Retreat April 5th through 7th in Huntington Beach, California. We're bringing you these Encore episodes with past guests of the podcast that will be coach facilitators at the retreat. We want you to get a chance to understand their philosophy and really get to know them before you even show up to the retreat. Dr. Christina Shenby is coach and founder of Time for Your Life. She's an accomplished emergency physician, educator, and keynote speaker. She spearheads Time for Your Life, a transformative platform focused on time management and career development. I've benefited from Dr. Shenby's coaching, and I'm always blown by how much we accomplish in a short coaching session and the insights she helps me unlock. She's a really special person, and I can't wait for you to get to know her better. It's going to be so great to take walks on the beach, go to yoga class, do small group work, hang out at dinner, around the fire pit. I'm sure that there's going to be some really powerful insights that come together for all of us when we're at this retreat. So enjoy today's episode and get to know Dr. Shenby a little bit better. Welcome to the Revitalizing Doctor podcast. We interview trailblazers in medicine that embody the revitalized women vision to empower women to innovate and influence medicine to value authenticity, respect, and work-life harmony. We recognize the challenges in medicine and we're committed to providing coaching and form strategies to help you go from surviving to thriving. I am thrilled today to have my friend and colleague, Dr. Christina Shenby on the podcast. She received her bachelor's degree summa cum laude from Princeton University, her PhD from UC Berkeley, her MD from Yale University, and her executive MBA from UNC Keenan Flagler Business School. She completed her residency in emergency medicine and fellowship in geriatric emergency medicine at UNC. She is a practicing emergency physician, educator, keynote speaker, and leader. Welcome, Christina. Thank you, Andrea. I'm so excited to be here to talk with you and also share some ideas with your listeners. I think your podcast and your mission are fantastic. Well, that means a lot coming from you. And I just want to share with the audience that I have the honor to really have amazing people on this podcast. And I really feel everyone we've had on are visionaries. But I feel a special kinship with you. And every time we interact, I just leave conversations with my mind opened in new ways. So I'm really excited to share you with our audience. So when I look at your bio, you have, I mean, you're incredibly accomplished. You've trained at some of the highest prestige institutions in the world, and you've done many different things, getting your MBA, you have a PhD. In a way, I find medicine an interesting choice for someone like you because you're very curious. You've done lots of different things. And with medicine, I find it personally very limiting in a way because we have to spend so much time to understand how the human body works. It's such a complicated thing. In some ways, I think it's probably as complicated or more complicated than the universe or the solar system. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your decision 
to go into medicine? Well, it's interesting, Andrea, because what often draws us in to start with isn't then what keeps us here as we're entering kind of mid-career. And so what drew me in, as with most people, was an interest in helping patients, making an impact on their lives, and also just an interest in science. I had always enjoyed biology and was a chemistry major, and then did you know biochemistry, PhD, and so loved the science of medicine, and then wanted to be able to have an impact on individual patients. Right. And I think that that what you just said is very important for our listeners, because I do talk with a lot of physicians that are mid-career and maybe developing or going through some burnout. So you talked about what drew you into medicine. What keeps you in medicine? Because you have options. You probably have more options than the average physician, given all of the different educational degrees that you've pursued outside of medicine. Why are you still here? Well, sometimes I ask myself the same question. I won't lie. But I think starting out, it was more about how do you help individual patients and just figuring out the medicine. And now what interests me more is, yes, still helping those patients. But more than that, how do we create systems to help patients more in kind of a national landscape? How do we develop national programs that will move the needle to improve ERs or improve emergency care in general? And similarly, when you start out in education, you most of the time do it because you love those interactions teaching, either one-on-one or teaching in a classroom. And I still love that. I love teaching residents one-on-one on a shift. But now more of my time and what keeps me here is more systems-based questions around curriculum design. How do we set academic policy and support in order to help students succeed? Or how do we disseminate educational best practices across institutions? And questions about, for example, how do you set a vision and goals? And then how do you align your teaching, your pedagogy to it? How do you align your assessments to it? How do you then implement a new program? So what brings you in is more the one-on-one care or one-on-one teaching. And then for me, at least, what's evolved into my now mid-career interests is more around systems and processes. So when you go into a shift now, knowing that I I think you and I are similar, that the shift itself, for the most part to me, is in some ways routine. Like there's not very often a case that really gets my intellectual juices going. What keeps you from being like negative? I think you've actually wrote an article on how to have a better shift. What mindset things are you doing? Because I find myself sometimes like, gosh, anybody could be working this shift besides me right now, but nobody could be doing the curriculum development or these other system-wide things. So sometimes I'm questioning, why am I here on this shift? So what's your approach to that problem or how do you still be present when you go in for a shift? You know, it's a challenge. And especially I I feel like for people who are working clinically full time, it becomes even more challenging. You mentioned burnout. And one of the symptoms of burnout is you like start to lose your connection to your mission or connection to what matters. For me, going into a shift, it is. It's kind of like, here's eight hours. I need to see the patients that I can in eight hours, take care of people, make sure people get what they need. But I'm not necessarily changing care. There's no like care transformation that really takes place on shift. 
but I kind of compartmentalize it in a way where this is my clinical time. And then my systems based time or time where I think about how do I improve? You know, for me, it's more the education sphere than the clinical operations sphere. But how do I improve education? Then that takes place on a different, different days, different times. So I kind of compartmentalize it in that way and still have, you know, the goal of showing up and doing my best on that shift. But that's not maybe the main focus of my career right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think for some of us that have that systems brain or that systems brain has been opened or activated into this phase of our careers, you do have to learn to, in some ways, shut it off or shut it down or quiet it on shift. Because I found sometimes I'm annoyed on shift because I'll start to get wrapped up into a systems solution to what just needs to be a very practical, how do we move this patient through this interaction? There's only so much you can do on shift. And your shifts are a good opportunity to then find those problems, to say, what are the key issues? What are the bottlenecks? What are potential solutions that will really work for the people with boots on the ground? That makes a lot of sense. One of the ways our friendship and connection has grown over the years is the shared interest in coaching. Given your background, especially since I know you're extremely evidence-based, you're not going to do something that's too woo-woo. You're going to have evidence behind something that you're spending time on. Let's start with a very basic question. What is coaching? Coaching is fundamentally just one person talking with another person. And the goal is to gain clarity around your own thoughts, desires, plans, etc. And there's different types of coaching. Performance coaching is more thought of for people, say you're struggling or not performing as well, and you need performance coaching to kind of get you up to speed. Whereas general coaching, executive leadership, life coaching is more just around how do you become the best version of yourself? How do you live in a way that's really aligned with your values? How do you create more meaning or do more of what matters to you in your life? And so coaching uses a lot of different frameworks or processes, but one is of just reflective inquiry, where the coach is listening to the person speaking, understanding and reformulating, reflecting it back to them, and then asking key questions that helps the individual get more clarity. So it could help you get a new perspective or untangle your thoughts. Often coaching clients come in with kind of a tangle of thoughts, like there's a lot of different threads. Maybe there's family, that's a big thread, or purpose in work or burnout or frustration or seeking adventure or whatever it is for them. There's all these threads that are kind of tangled up. And so you come in and first the question is just what are all the threads? And then which one do we tug on first? And where do we help untangle this knot? And it's not something that will happen, you know, after one session immediately, but it's pretty impressive how much clarity you can get even in just a half hour or an hour session of coaching. So my hope is my personal branding around coaching is to be a thought partner to help catalyze growth and renewal in people's lives. And there is some evidence for coaching. And we're actually at a really great place in medicine where people are just starting to study and research coaching and its effect on performance or on burnout or things like that. So there's some smaller studies at this point that have looked at coaching and found There's some benefit, but really we're still at the stages where we're building that evidence. For me personally, 
coaching has been incredibly helpful over the last four or so years. And I still get coaching as well as doing coaching. And I'm finishing up my coaching certification program right now. And I feel like if you are a coach, but you're not getting coached, then you're kind of not really buying into what you're selling. So for me, continuing to get coached has been really important for my own personal growth. I love that message. And I was just kind of internally chuckling because I have a coaching appointment this afternoon. Listeners of the pod will remember Sheree Johnson. So she's a psychologist and physician coach in Australia and author of The Thriving Doctor. And I am doing the Recalibrate program um, with Sheree. So I have my first session with her today and uh, we'll be having group sessions over the next six months. And I'm really excited for that program. I've thought about it for actually years when I first met Sheree and I'm taking the leap today. So yes, we talk about coaching a lot on this podcast and I am taking my medicine, doing my coaching. (laughs) You'll love it. I want to pivot to, I say pivot, but it's actually not a pivot because I think this question links into the idea of coaching, or at least when I read the question, I thought about how does coaching link to this? So I'm going to back up and give the audience a little bit of context. So most of our listeners know that there's a Facebook group called EM Docs that many emergency physicians belong to. It's a closed group. And you posed a question in that group about the future of emergency medicine. And actually, I don't really recall exactly how you framed it. What was the question? It was basically around, what do you think emergency medicine will look like in 15 years? Will it be better? Will it be worse? Will it be more regulated, less regulated? And people could add their own options as well for responses. So tell me why you asked that question. And I'll tell you my hypothesis from talking to a lot of emergency physicians would have been that everyone says that the ship is sinking, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But my second hypothesis is, while that's probably true in a lot of ways, I'm beginning to think that physicians have ceded a lot of our agency. And as we become increasingly burned out by the system breaking, we recede further and further into this mindset that nothing will change. And then vis-a-vis nothing does change. So... That was my take on the question and the responses, but I'm really interested in in what you thought going into that and then what you found. Well, I was really just curious. I think we can fall into a couple different errors. One is to say everything is terrible. We kind of sit around and we awfulize. We talk about how awful everything is and how it's just going to get worse. And that can be one problem. But then if they truly believe this, which the majority of people said, yes, I think it's going to be worse in 15 years. A few people said, you know, I think by then the pendulum will be swinging back and it will be getting better. But at least for the next 10 years, the majority said, yes, it's going to be worse for the next 10 years. If that's true, then why are so many people holding on? And I think there's another layer of belief that, no, somebody is going to fix it. Somebody will come along and fix it. So there's these kind of competing subconscious beliefs of everything's terrible and it's going to get worse, but there's this hope that maybe it will get better. And so that creates kind of some tension and also, to your point, some learned helplessness. 
that we feel like as physicians, things just happen to us, whether it's hospital leadership, CMS, government, other payers, other people with power who are making things happen to us without our consent or without our involvement. And I think there's been years of learned helplessness that now makes it really hard to sense what is even going on. What is our future? So I was mostly just curious to see what people thought. And yes, the result, I think over 550 people voted and the majority said they think that things will be worse in the next 10, 15 years. Hmm. It's interesting to me because I've transitioned into a new role um, with a fairly new hospital. I think the hospital's only been there about 10 years and I'm the simulation director there. And I got invited to be on the Code Blue committee. And part of that was they wanted to start some Code Blue simulations. So I went to my first Code Blue committee meeting and it was in a large hospital conference room. And I I walked in admittedly a couple minutes late and took a seat in the back of the room. And I realized very quickly that I was the only physician present. And there was probably about 30 nurses in the room. And several issues came up, cases were presented, and I'd wait. This is my first meeting, so I'm not going to just, you know, start piping up. But things were said, you know, like, oh, these people aren't filling out the form correctly and getting back to simulation and coaching the inquiry. So I just started asking questions well, why do you think the forms are being filled out wrong? And then suddenly a nurse answers like, well, it's confusing. And then maybe this was happening and everyone started chatting. And as I was sitting there in the room, I was like, oh my gosh, this is embarrassing that I'm the only physician here. Physicians have such an important role. I'm not saying we're the end all be all. That was a different phase of medicine. But the pendulum for physician involvement in the hospitals has swung the opposite way. So my call to action for the listeners is you have to start showing up and you have to find ways for that showing up to be compensated so you can do it. I'm not asking Mm -hmm. you to add a free meeting. I'm done with being, especially mid-career people, we've done the free thing. Mm -hmm. I'm very fortunate that my time at that meeting is compensated very directly. But it really drove home to me that we have an important voice and that we have agency. And they were so happy I was there. They recognized, oh, Dr. Austin's here. And then a couple things came up and they're like, can you come up to the front and tell us about this? They were craving it. And I know that it's not like that in every hospital. I've been to other hospitals where the bureaucracy is so entrenched, the culture is so entrenched that it's very hard to break into. So I'm very fortunate for that. But do you have any reactions to that or? No, that really resonates that a couple of things you said. One is taking action in small ways, whether that's, you know, one committee in your hospital where at least you can be the voice that says you almost what you brought up is design thinking, which goes back to the user that says, well, what's the experience the user is having that makes it difficult for them to fill out these forms? Oh, well, it's because they have to go straight from this code to like something else. So they don't have time for paperwork or they don't know how to access the forms, or the forms have to be printed and the printer doesn't work. Like getting down to what's going on in this user's space in that moment. 
And then also, yes, asking for compensation for your time. I agree. I've put in hundreds, thousands of hours for free of being on committees, speaking at things. And now there may be many committees that are just, quote, service committees that nobody is getting paid for. And so you need to decide, is this worth my time? Is this in line with my values? Will this committee help improve things in a way that I care about? So ideally being compensated for your time, if possible. But if not, sometimes it's still worth it to do those things to feel like, okay, I'm having an impact. I'm making changes in my environment that will benefit me and other physicians or patients, nurses, et cetera. Absolutely. So I wanted to at least introduce our listeners, and I've brought this term up several times, but I really like the way that you framed it. Thanks for listening to The Revitalizing Doctor, a project of Revitalized Women Physician Circle. Our mission is to connect women physicians and allies through innovative value-based coaching methods to ignite the courage and clarity necessary to create change and thrive. If you're interested in working with us, check out our website, peoplealwayshcc.com slash revitalize. This podcast represents the views of our hosts and guests. It does not reflect the views of any institution we work for or with. Podcast production assistance is provided by Caitlin Din and Ali Dingus. Sound editing for this podcast is brought to you by Better Podcasting Services. You can find them at betterpodcastingservices.com.